This is the Wicked Problems and Circular Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ostrike. Ian, we're a couple weeks away from the U.S. elections. Given the craziness that's going on there, can you share what sort of scenarios are playing out in your head? Well, less than you might think. Um, I don't I don't actually find doing a lot of scenario work is all that useful. I present scenarios to my readers when I feel that the scenarios are useful for them so that they can make decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're going to make a different decision based on who wins or whether or not the the election is disputed, you know, whether or not the, the idea that, you know, he may say no and try not to leave and, and the military might get involved and all of that. If you're going to make different decisions based on what happens, then the scenarios are useful. They're also useful mm-hmm. if you're doing scenario testing in the sense of, uh, I believe that A leads to B and I want to, to see whether or not, you know, which one happens, right? And whether or not my, uh, my modeling was correct. Since I don't have that sort of advanced modeling of, of the U.S. electoral system because I'm very bad at electoral prediction and I also don't mm-hmm. care, well, I, d- I don't think it matters. And that's actually kind of important in the sense that I have no leverage to change the outcome of U.S. elections and therefore I don't spend a lot of time working on them anymore because what difference does it make, right? There are places where I do have leverage and that's where I put my time. So I think that, that there's not a lot of if you're looking at the U.S. election and you're looking at the U.S. election results, and the question you have to be asking yourself is, why does it matter to me or to other people that I have influence or power over? Right. So, you know, for example, are you gonna are you gonna leave the U.S. if 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 Trump wins? If if you're the of the the more left wing variety, right? Or are you mm-hmm. going to change your plans? Are you going to you know, are you going to try and make yourself more resistant to um, the things that he might do? Do you are you are you in an at risk community? I mean, are you a member of? You know, I, I have some friends who are right on the front lines of Black Lives Matters, and then I can I can assume that if Trump wins, well, I can assume that if either of them win, they're going to crack down. But presumably, Trump will crack down more, right? You know, are you Hispanic? Do you have undocumented relatives? I mean, what's your actual situation and what's your actual risk? You know, are you a woman who's going to lose their abortion right? What are, you know, are you likely to need an abortion? Do you know somebody who does? All of those sort of things are actually what matter, you know. So what is your actual risk and benefit portfolio? I mean, maybe there's some ways that you can benefit from from Trump winning, right? I mean, to be crass, you know, Trump will probably be slightly better for my for my bottom line, right? Because uh, liberals hate Trump, right? And then, you know, left-wingers and liberals read me. And speaking from experience, <laughs> when uh, when Obama won last time, liberals went home and basically the entire left-wing blogosphere collapsed because they couldn't be bothered to oppose Obama when he did exactly the same things as Bush had been doing or even worse things, right? So, um, so suddenly it was like, no, 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 he's our guy, so therefore his war crimes don't count. All of these things are, have to be taken into account. All of this hysterical screaming about Trump, and I mean, I do agree that he's a threat in many ways, is meaningless if if when I talk to you, you say, well, I'm not going to do anything about it, right? Well, I'm just going to continue living my life exactly the same way that I always did. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then then it doesn't matter. The election doesn't actually matter, right? I mean, it, it doesn't sure. – <laughs> it's just the weather. It's like it's like saying, what are you going to do when it's sunny out or cloudy out, right? Well, you're going to do what you do, right? But it's it's if you're not going to change anything about it, then it's meaningless, right? And I think that that's the position that most Americans are in, that they have a preference, but they aren't going to do anything. People are talking about the possibility of Trump losing and then refusing to go. What do you think happens then? I, I don't know. I mean, but that's the thing is, is that I don't know and I can't know. I mean, all that's really required is for a couple hundred thousand people to show up at the Supreme Court, Congress, and mm-hmm. uh, the White House, and if necessary, storm all three, and that takes care of the situation, right? <laughs> unless the military, yeah. unless the military is actually willing to do a whiff of grape shop and start mowing them down in the hundreds of thousands, right? So, oh and, and and again, all that really matters here is well, you, you got two situations, right? One is mm-hmm. how, what will people in D.C. do, and and how many people are willing to ship themselves into D.C., right? It's like during the French Revolution, you know, there's a fair bit of evidence that most people outside of Paris didn't want the revolution, right? Like the peasants weren't actually that unhappy. I mean, I might argue that maybe they should have been, but they weren't, uh, especially not the property, you know, the property ones, right? And mm-hmm. um, But it didn't matter because they weren't in Paris, right? right. Um, and, you know, when the, when the mob killed the king, you're coming along for the ride now, especially since the army is on our <laughs> side, right? So. Yeah. 
So, you know, what people in D.C. and what people who are willing to go to D.C. and what military units want to do and what judges and cops want to do. And so if you want to do a real power analysis, then you start looking at it. Okay, so what are the D.C. cops going to do? Or they're gonna, I mean, will they, support the, will they support the mayor or will they support Trump? You take a look at the immigrant – obviously, ICE and the immigration uh, people will support Trump. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. They will flood into the city and they will shoot anybody they have to in order to protect Trump, right? There's no question. Those are his personal fucking brown shirts, right? And anybody who thinks otherwise is an idiot. But, you know, the military trumps all that. I mean, if the military decides that, that Trump goes, then Trump goes, right? It's just that mm-hmm. simple, right? And so then you're looking at, you know, where are the various people who actually control military military or paramilitary force is going to fall you know and then are they actually willing to mo- and then is there a large mob of, of of people who are going to force them to go and then is the military willing to intervene and that's the sort of scenario thinking that you need to do in that scenario and and then of course you know there, there's also sort of the legitimacy factor in 2000 which is the last time the u.s had a coup and anybody who tells you there wasn't a coup is a liar the Supreme Court gave the coup legitimacy. Now, what I am told, because I had some inside contact of people who actually were in the inside loop on the Gore campaign, is that a couple of decisions were made that had a big effect. I believe it was Sandra Day O'Connor. Anyway, she was the she was a wavering vote, apparently. And when she saw that nobody showed up to protest, she, she decided... This is what I had been told, and I don't know it for a fact, but I believe it mm-hmm. because it comes from a credible source. She decided that they could get away with Bush versus Gore, which they knew was bad law, and they knew it was such a bad law that they said it couldn't be used as a precedent, right? So they knew it was a judicial coup, and they did it anyway. And there were a series of decisions along those lines. So, for example, when there was the so-called you know Brooks Brother Republican riot, and they shut, they stopped the recount. There were buses full of Teamsters <laughs> and hard black men literally ready to go and gore did not want to risk violence so he told them not to send them in but if you saw the if you saw the videos if you if you've ever seen the video of the of those guys they were all these pasty white I mean, the Teamsters would have shut them down in two seconds, and if there had been violence, it would have been entirely one-sided, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, those people would have had their faces stomped so badly that it wouldn't have even been a, you know, there would have been, <laughs> there wouldn't have been a fight. There just would have been a massacre, right? I mean, they would have just had mm-hmm. the shit kicked out of them, right? <laughs> and I blame Gore for this, you know, more than I can possibly mention. He was so unwilling, he was such a good man and so unwilling to risk any violence that he caused the Iraq, you know, and all of the things that come from Bush because he wasn't willing to fight. And, you know, the, the Republicans, it's the, it's the old line about, you know, the worst of people are full of passionate sincerity and the best men, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, can't be bothered to, to do anything. So Gore basically destroyed the world. I mean, he, you know, he also would have, you know, done stuff about climate change and so forth and so on. He basically threw away his own presidency because he wasn't willing to risk a few people getting hurt, maybe one or two people dying. And as a result, we had 9-11, which probably would not have happened under a Gore administration for various reasons. We had the Iraq war, which even under a 9-11 would not have happened under a Gore administration, right? And we had all of the opportunity cost of not doing anything to actually do something about climate change, which say what you will about Gore, Gore was serious about, right? Uh, and all because, you know, he didn't want to have a little bit of violence. And he was basically willing to let people who, who were willing to do a little bit of violence have a complete Trump over him, right? So in other words, if somebody was willing to threaten that there might be a small brawl where two or three people or maybe 50 people got hurt, I don't know, he wasn't willing to step up and say, okay, then, you know, I mean, I'm not going to back down from this threat of violence. And if there's violence, then there's violence. I, you know, I sure didn't start it, right? But I'm bloody well going to finish it, right? And as a result, the Supreme Court felt that everything was okay and they could go ahead with this, right? And also, of course, if you'd, got, if you'd actually made sure that the recount continued, there might be nothing for the, for the Supreme Court to do. And if, you know, there's various other stuff about the whole thing, but there's no question when you look into it, and I looked into it in great detail at the time, that there was a coup and that the, you know, the election was stolen. And it was absolutely 100% stolen. Bush should never have been president. You know, democratic legitimacy was destroyed at that point. So if Trump were to get away with something similar, it wouldn't be the first time, it would be the second time, right? And so this, this is the actual situation. My personal belief is that the United States, well, I, I just don't think it can be saved. I don't think you're going to get good politics in the U.S. again in my lifetime. I could be wrong. There's a small chance, right? Is that you know you never write anybody off completely, right? But I don't think it's a good use of. Um, back in the 2000s, I thought it was a good use of my time as a non-American to try and help Americans. I no longer think it is, except that I help individuals. I mean, I try to guide people through the situation. But but in terms of trying to you know putting a serious effort into trying to change the politics, maybe Americans will succeed, maybe they won't, I don't know. But you know, the trend lines are not good. And 
even those trend lines that are good, you need such a reversal, such a massive reversal that you need an F, you know, you sort of need an FDR style, FDR level reversal for mm-hmm. America to come back to being a nation that is worthy of being America, shall we say. And that's just entirely not on offer at the moment. Well, there's a small chance. I mean, maybe maybe AOC and the squad, and if things go very badly during the next thing, I mean, you can, you know, you just never know. And that's one of the things that I've come to learn is you just, you actually just don't know, right? But I don't see the signs of, mostly don't see the signs of seriousness. There's some signs of seriousness, like when AOC said that she wouldn't donate to the, you know, to the Democratic National Congress, for example. That was a sign of seriousness, right? Well, okay, if you're going to, if you're going to blackball, you know, anybody who works for a progressive candidate, then, then you know, I'm not going to give you money, obviously, right? So, you know, that sort of refusal to play ball with actual enemies, even if they're supposedly part of your party, right? Or AOC coming out and picking FDR up, FDR, <laughs> picking Bernie up at his lowest point, for example, mm-hmm. was another good sign, right? Sure. So, and, and so forth and so on. So you're beginning to see the formation of a progressive caucus that actually believes in itself, believes that it is legitimate, and believes that it has a right to fight. Yeah, I should clarify. Um, I think there's plenty of hope in that group, but I'm looking at this upcoming election and the following administrations, and I'm just not seeing that kind of opportunity on offer. Oh, well, um, there's, there's, obviously, there's, there's obviously no hope for Biden or for, um, or for Trump. And in fact, the, the problem with the Biden scenario is you know is that okay so let's say that trump wins right mm-hmm. then in 2024 you have a chance of a good president the democrats can put up somebody who's actually good maybe it won't be bernie but maybe somebody in theory somebody good could win the nomination and then win the presidency right mm-hmm. uh whereas if trump if biden wins then kamala harris is the is is the heir presumptive right mm-hmm. And, well, you know, I mean, she's a very impressive, very scary woman who I would never turn my back on if she wanted anything that I ever had, right down to a single penny. And, um, and wow, yeah, she's impressive. Uh, and completely, completely 100% neoliberal centrist scum, right? So, you know, so therefore, let's say that, you know, so if she wins and then she rules for, you know, four or eight years, you know, but, but at this point we're at 2030, you're 2032 before we can do anything significant or meaningful. And you're probably losing at that point anyways. Well, we, well, you know, <laughs> it, it, there is a ticking time clock. This isn't a normal, this isn't a normal scenario. This isn't a normal, normally we have these cycles and they happen or they don't happen. And yeah, it's bad if you're caught in it, but whatever, right? But the point is, is that we also have the running ourselves off a cliff with climate change thing going on at the same time. And we're out of time. We're literally already out of time. At this point, we're now dealing with mitigation, not with being able to stop it. And the longer we wait to mitigate, the more hundreds of millions of people are going to die, suffer, starve, the more wars there will be. I mean, we're, we're, we're looking at a very, very, very catastrophic period coming up that having the world's only superpower with its head up its ass for the next 12 years with its internal stupidity and, and actually making things worse. And I remember that Biden and Obama massively increased fracking, and they did it deliberately. Obama took credit for it. He said, that was us, folks. That's the, the, it's an actual quote. You can look it up online, right? He was very proud of his record of massively increasing how much fracking was being done. And of course, mm-hmm. fracking is terrible for climate change, right? So, you know, these people are, you know, I'm not saying that he won't do anything or that he won't be better than Trump, blah, blah, blah. But this is a case of running from a bear. And if you don't do, you know, if you don't run fast enough, it doesn't matter that you ran fast, right? It's like, well, I ran <laughs> I ran ten percent faster than I ever had before, and then the bear ate me. Well, great. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, we bent the curve. I mean, that was my personal best. Um, <laughs> good for you, man. Um, you know, so so it's you know, it, it, there's you know, I mean, we're 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 in you know multiple species genocide time here, right? I mean, we're just killing species off left, right, and center. We're going to lose entire countries. You know, there are countries where. 
you know, I mean, my modeling at least shows there's going to be tens to hundreds of millions of deaths. I mean, I can't see how India gets away without losing a couple hundred million people. Bangladesh is going to be wiped off the map, right? I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, we're, you know, I mean, it, it's not an apocalypse, probably. I mean, humanity will probably survive, but, you know, a lot of people are going to die and there's going to be a lot of misery and so forth. And here we are worrying with this Trump Biden stuff where the stuff that actually matters isn't even on the agenda. I mean, we aren't even talking about reality. We're just talking about this weird fantasy land. Yeah, I hear you. It's depressing. Well, you know, I mean, there's there's, there's stuff that can be done. It's just the, the locus of, of activity needs to move away. I'm not saying the people who are doing politics shouldn't keep doing it. I mean, the long shots are worth it. We may be able to turn things around, blah, blah, blah. But most people need to look at where their actual power is, where their actual ability to make changes, and, and work on the things where they actually have some agency. And that's usually not going to be politics. Do what you can. But um, the, the point where we could save everybody is now gone, and it is now triage time. And the question mm-hmm. now is, who is going to survive how well, and who is going to come go through and come out of climate change uh, and be powerful in the post-climate, you know, during during and in the post-climate change world. It's unfortunate that we're there. I spent a large chunk of my life working against it, as did, you know, hundreds of thousands of other people, and we failed, right? And uh, But that's fine because, you know, most people in the world either wanted or weren't willing to do anything to stop it, and you, you, you can't save people from themselves, you know? That's just as true in mass politics as it is when you're dealing with an individual. Ernesto Ciroli's line about uh, people not wanting your help, leaving them alone. I guess that kind of fits here. Well, people, people, people. If people want your help, they'll usually tell you, right? <laughs> if if you go volunteering to help people who haven't actually asked, then mostly, yeah, they don't want your help. Uh, and even a lot of people who want your help don't really want your help. They sort of want they want everything fixed without having to change anything. There was some game planning done in D.C. about a month ago. A lot of Beltway insiders. They took a look at what might happen, possible scenarios, and while they saw a lot of possibility for bad things to happen, they thought that in the end there was there was broad consensus that the system would work, that if Trump tried to hang on, that he would be removed from office. What, what do you think about that? There's a question of legitimacy that comes up that, that is somewhat important. When you have the 2000 coup, norms were not as devolved back then as they have become. But the point is, is they had to throw it into dispute first, right? And then they had to move it to the Supreme Court and get their junta to to give them their approval, right? So in the sense that, yeah, if, if the numbers come in and there's just no way to massage them, I do think he will have to go. Now, I could be wrong and the US could be much more broken than even I think it is. And that that's quite possible. I mean, I just don't know, especially since I don't live there and I'm, I'm not in DC. And there are some things you can really only know if, if, if you're on the ground and you know the people involved, because mm-hmm. a lot of these things will be determined by a very small number of people, right? Now, whether a mob comes out and storms the White House or whatever, you know, that that's not a small number of people decision, although it might be, mm-hmm. and I just don't know those people. But most of the other stuff is is very small numbers of people. I mean, there's only nine people on the Supreme Court. It's actually probably down to about two or three of them who actually would make the decision whether to support the coup, because the other, the other ones are already locked in. The Senate is controlled by very few people, and most votes are already locked in, so you just got a few swing votes. And the military, again, it's just a question of two or three generals who are going to make the decision, and those are the people who control the troops near DC. And so, you know, you're, you're talking about a very few people who actually have an influence over this. You know, for the for the vote counting, it comes down to one particular person who's required to certify the results, and then sometimes the Senate. And I could be getting all that wrong, but basically at every level, there's very few people who are actually making the decision. And who they are and what they want and what they're willing to do and how far they're willing to go is just not entirely clear. And if those people make it clear to Trump that they won't support him, then Trump is gone. And if they make it clear to Trump that that they will support him, that's when you come into an actual power play situation. It's like, okay, I've got enough support to throw this into doubt. I obviously control the uh, the Supreme Court, especially after installing the, the most recent you know justice. So all I have to do is throw it in doubt and get it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will give it to me. Or if it goes to the Senate, then I probably get it as well. Or does it go to the House? I forget. All of these scenarios are very interesting, but they don't matter very much for the reason mm-hmm. that I said earlier, which is to say that you and I have no control over it, and neither do anybody. Neither does anybody who's listening to this. And that, of course, is the problem. That the situation has got to the point where what you and I and that people who are listening to this 
think doesn't matter, right? What the majority of the population wants is largely irrelevant in this situation. It comes down mm-hmm. to a few oligarchs and their lackeys. And so we just watch. I mean, America is not a functional democracy at this point. Really, the question comes down to is, is there enough residual democratic sentiment that the people would come out and force a violent confrontation? And then the question is, as we said before, will the people who have guns mow them down? And those are the two questions, right? So my my guess is the military will not mow them down, but if it comes down to ICE, ICE will mow them down, right? But again, it comes down to these these incalculables that I don't know and you can't know, and you and I have no no ability to influence this and, and so forth and so on. Now, if you were somebody important in the community in D.C., your opinion might matter, right? If you're the sort of person who can rouse up a crowd and get them out to, to the White House, that might matter. Or if you fairly, live fairly close to D.C. and you're willing to organize a bunch of buses and get a bunch of people over there, then your opinion could actually be of some significance. But your opinion, in my opinion, is completely irrelevant. And the, the majority of Americans are not going to do anything. They're just going to sit on their ass and watch CNN or whatever, right? Or Fox. So in most respects, this is a spectator sport, whether we, you know, mm-hmm. where we're watching. So will Augustus and, you know, the the republic and what actually matters as i said before is for you to decide what you're going what you personally are going to do based on the results yeah that's where i was trying to go with this if someone's at greater risk in this moment what should they be preparing for they should be doing whatever it takes to reduce their risk. Now, what that is for specific people, I don't know. For a number of years, quite a number of years, I mean, for a long time now, I've been telling Americans, especially people who are very left-wing, that they should leave the U.S. I mean, they should seriously consider doing that. But the fact is, is that it's actually very hard to leave the U.S. if you aren't actually relatively rich or have some skills that are massively in demand, or if you're old, you know, because most countries want young people and so forth and so on. Like, I mean, I live in Canada, but, you know, getting yourself into Canada is actually actually very difficult as an American. I mean, you know, if you're just some Joe Blow, we won't take you, right? It's just that simple. Mm-hmm. Bugger off. That doesn't mean that there aren't ways to reduce your risk profile otherwise within the country. There are things that you may be able to do, which, you know, you may need to withdraw from politics, or you may need to go into a mutual aid society, or you may need to join mm-hmm. a co-op. Or I mean, I don't know. I mean, I cannot know each person's specific situation. But the question you have to say is, if things are going to get worse, how are they going to get worse? And what can I do about it? You know, like, what is my risk of doing a, losing my job? Is there any way that, you know, I and some other people can get together and create a living circumstance where we don't need very much money to pay the rent, right, or the mortgage or whatever? You know, how can I increase my resiliency? Or how can I, I – I don't think that's a good way of putting it. A better way of putting it is how can I make it so that I am not subject to outside shocks as much as possible? Mm-hmm. If you're paying 80% of your income or 90% of your income, every month just to survive, then you're screwed if anything goes wrong. And, you know, there are other practical things you can do. Maybe you hate the cops and with good reason, but you could go kiss their ass if you want. You know, I remember there was, uh, well, I mean, what are you willing to do to survive? There was, many years ago, there was a a survivalist and science fiction author by the name of Dean Ng. And he wrote a bunch of novels back in the 70s, some of which are pretty good. He was sort of semi-libertarian before libertarians went completely crazed. But he went to – he was serious survivalist, very concerned about nuclear warfare. He moves himself to a rural society, to a, you know, to a town, and it has a military base. He says, you know, I do two things. He says, I make sure that I am personal friends with A, the police chief, and B, the, uh, the base commander. They know me. They like me. So do the troops. So the cops. In other words, the people who are in control of organized violence are my friends. And now that, that may not be possible for you, depending on who or what you are, to make that happen, or it may just be against your ethics. I can understand. I don't like the cops very much myself. What are you going to do about that? How are you going to reduce your vulnerability to them if you don't want to become friends with them? Which is, you know, I mean, perfectly fine, right? And just be, you know, you may not be able to become friends with them depending on who you are, you know. If, you know, you're you a gay, black, trans, you know, woman, you're, you're, your odds of becoming friends with the local cops are probably not the best. But what are you going to do to reduce your vulnerability to political violence, right? What are you going to do to reduce your vulnerability to economic shocks? Because there's going to be a lot of economic shocks as the oligarchy continues to consolidate under its own con- everything under its own control, right? And as they need less and less people and as they gain more and more power. And that's going to happen irrespective of Trump and Biden. And I think that that's the other point that I would really want to make because everything you're doing so far is the election, the election, the election, Biden versus Trump. Whereas from my point of view, it doesn't matter that much. It does matter. 
in the short run, it doesn't matter in the long run very much because yeah. Biden is one of the architects of – I mean, he really is. I mean, he's like one of the driving forces behind the bankruptcy bill. He was one of the driving forces behind the crime bills of the 90s and so forth. I mean, he's an important guy, right? He was a very powerful senator who was very ideologically driven to create the uh, the, the the oligarchy that we have, right? He definitely believes in that. It is his legacy. He created it. And it is what made something like Trump, or for that matter, Bush, possible. He is not going to improve things significantly. I mean, there may be a, a bit of a dead cat bounce. Yeah, it's not crazy Trump guy. Things maybe get a little bit better as you go back to the status quo ante. But the fact is, is that Biden, Trump, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Reagan created the circumstances that have impoverished Americans and polarized American politics and led to all of the problems that we now have. A return to the politics that created Trump is is not actually – all it does is buy you a little bit of time. And if you're smart, you use the time to prepare for the next Trump, and the next Trump is going to be much more dangerous because the smart, disciplined people have taken a look at what Trump did and said – Oh, mm -hmm. we're at the end of American empire where there is a possibility for a man on horseback or equivalent to take over. I can become king, you know, or I can become, well, there's a bunch of different ways things can, can blow out. But the point is, is that, that, there, that, that the norms have broken down and it is possible for anybody with the right support to become president. And that there is this vast wave of support of very angry, disaffected people, mm -hmm. you know, on, on all sides, right, who can be mobilized to push you into power. So, you know, Josh Hall, I think is it Hawley, you know, for example, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there, there's a bunch of people who are looking at this and salivating and and you know who are who are quite well aware that you know for example you know the, the working class is up for grabs and that they can become sort of you know the right wing um kingfisher they can grab power and have a personal cult and be extremely powerful. All of that stuff is still in play. Plus, all of the oligarchy stuff is still happening. You know, coronavirus has actually has massively increased the wealth of the oligarchy. The way things are structurally set up, every time there is one, there is a shock. The rich get richer, and they use it to buy up more of the economy. And the more control they get over the economy, the more they're able to squeeze everybody else, and therefore your wages, in effect in real terms, go down, and so forth and so on. You have less power, you have less things. If you lose your job, there's nowhere to go, etc. So things like that are just going to keep getting worse under Biden, right? So there is no relief. There is no – what Biden does is buy you time for your plans, whatever your mm -hmm. plans are to secure yourself and your family or your friends or whoever you care about. And, you know, I mean, if I, and I, I have been thinking fairly seriously, seriously about this and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm poor and sick and not very well, but if I were to seriously get interested in putting together a couple million bucks, right, I would put together just a very small living circumstance that was able to have its own power, able to have its own water, if at all possible, able to grow its own food, you know, that sort of stuff. Very, very resilient. And I mean, you know, even things like having it be a positive pressure your house, right? Which is to say that, you know, so contaminants can't get inside the house and having oxygen concentrators and, and heavy duty filters through water and so forth. And if, if I were going to spend, you know, if I had a couple million dollars to spend, that's probably how I would spend it and putting it down to that situation where, you know, I don't have a mortgage. I only have to worry about a little bit of money and I can basically support myself because things are going to get really weird over the next 30 years. And, and that has very little to do with, you can't count on the public infrastructure standing up. You don't know when it's going to go down, for how long it's going to go down. You can't count on the supply chain staying in place properly. And if they do, if there are mass food shortages, what that actually shows up as is, is mass increases in price first. And if you're poor and you're already on the edge, and the next thing you know, you're going hungry, right? And this is the actual scenario that people should be looking at. The Trump-Biden stuff is very showy and very impressive and very distracting for the real problem, which is that, that civilization is on the verge of a collapse. The poorer you are and the, the more marginal you are, the less it takes to, to completely destroy your life, right? And the more subject you are to these shocks, you have no resilience. And gaining that resilience is now what is important, right? And you can do it as an individual or you can try and do it as groups, which is probably better. But that stuff is far more important than dealing with Trump or Biden, unless you're, you think you genuinely think you have a, have a moonshot of, you know, you have a, you have a plan for turning things around. Maybe you think you can, you can gain control 
because of changing demographics and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Maybe you have a plan. Maybe you got a plan, right? And if you do, all the more power to you. Go for it, right? <laughs> and if somebody has a plan, maybe you should help them. I believe that, right? But don't put all of your all of your marbles into we're going to fix American politics, and then the American government will take care of things and make sure that everything's okay. Yeah. Because that's a 10, 15, 20% shot. I mean, that that's not the most likely thing to happen. And even if you did turn it around, even if you did get a good government, even if you did get FDR, well, a lot of people still suffered a lot during the Great Depression, didn't they? Mm-hmm. And it's going to be worse than that, right? So even if you had somebody who wanted to help you, the amount that they can do is limited. This is, this is we're moving into an era where things are going to be very bad and you need to take care of yourself and your friends and your family and other people too. I mean, nothing wrong with that. I mean, I believe in collective action. I believe in all that stuff. Maybe you can take over a state. Maybe you can take over a city. Maybe you can, (laughs) you know, maybe there's a region where you can, you know, have sane politics. In fact, you probably want that. You know, if you've got a large enough group, then you pretty much have to take control of your local area to the extent you can, remembering that Trump and, you know, various other people can supersede that because they have the people with the guns, right? You know, this is the actual situation. And it is not sane, wise, or smart to be spending so much time on the Trump versus Biden thing that does not actually change anything significant, except from a sort of midterm tactical strategic perspective that if Biden gets in, you've got a bit more time. If you're very vulnerable to Trump, I mean, there are some people who obviously Trump is going to hurt very badly. And if you're part of one of those groups, then you need to know it. You need to be acting on it, right? But even then, because you cannot, A, whatever you can do about that, you're already doing, presumably. And B, Trump is not the end. You cannot assume that Trump is the end. You must assume that there may be another Trump, except more competent in wars. So that's the actual scenario. So I don't encourage people to spend huge amounts of time obsessing about the election. It's just not the smartest thing to do. You don't have any control over it, or very little, unless you're one of very few people who aren't listening to this podcast, I bet. It's just not the wisest use of your time or your emotional energy or your mental health to obsess over stuff you have no control over. So let's say Biden wins. That keeps the neoliberal era on life support for the time being. Regardless, I see it as something that's coming to an end. It's bringing great uncertainty into our lives, and it's allowing for the, the shifting of norms in U.S. politics. And so what I'm interested in is, is you know, thinking through what happens next. So the neoliberal order, I mean, there's some stuff that is going to happen no matter who Trump, whether Trump or Biden gets in. So, for example, the anti-China pivot. Mm-hmm. So the oncoming, onrushing Cold War with China, The there's a very decent chance, I don't I think something somewhere north of fifty percent, that the world splits into two trading and financial blocks. And that's becoming on very hard, especially because the US has been terribly, terribly abusing its position at the center of the current financial system to just, you know, completely you know, annihilate other countries. And and it's it's terrifying people outside of the US. You know, China and Russia are not willing to allow to allow the US to just completely destroy Iran, for example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so the only way for them to avoid that is to create their own financial system, which they have been working on, their own trade block, which they have been working on, and so forth. And I'm also seeing that within DC circles, there's a very bipartisan consensus that the Chinese are the bad guys, a nascent fascist, fascist state, uh, the rise, you know, the, the people who have to be opposed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So now, of course, there are a lot of people who are making a lot of money off of China in, in the US who oppose that. But from what I can see, they're on the back leg and on the way out. So I think you can expect that there's that. Then the question becomes, where does Europe go? As in the EU, obviously, um, you know, but obviously the British have decided to become an American lackey state. Canada has no choice but to be an American lackey state because of geography. You know, some some places where you stand is is based on where you sit. But you know, the world is is going to have to make a decision between these two blocks. And both actors are bad actors. I mean, they're you know they're both bad people. You know, I mean, we're not talking about you know there's a good choice, right? But you know, probably especially if you're not close to China, probably China is 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 going to look a lot better for a lot of nations than America is, just because you know they don't seem to really want to have so much control over your internal politics, right? You know, I mean, you're you're still going to have to bow. Don't get me wrong. Wrong, right. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when they say, you know, we have we have a dissident who has fled to your country, you have to say, yes, sir, and hand them over, right? But then, you know, let's not pretend that they may that isn't the true of, you know, American dissidents as we sure. see what's happening to Assan. So who isn't even American? So there's all of that stuff happening. As for neoliberalism, that's a really big conversation. Neoliberalism as neoliberalism is done, simply because it has 
you know, I hate to get all Marxist, but it has destroyed, you know, its internal contradictions have have, have and are destroying the conditions for its for its existence. Mm-hmm. So the, the original neoliberal coalition is basically a deal between oligarchs and suburban householders. <laughs> you know, we're gonna we're gonna let you in on the scam. So we're gonna let you have a whole bunch of unearned money from, you know, some from the stock market, but mostly from owning a house, right? And that, that that's gonna rise faster than wages and you're gonna be able to cash it out. And you don't have to do anything for this. All you have to do is have been lucky enough to to own a house or buy a house during the early period of you know of the neoliberal era, right? In exchange, you're not going to get any wage increases ever again. Not as the majority of people. And, you know, I mean, this is very explicit. This is very much what is done in, in the US. In the UK, you know, Thatcher actually takes the council housing, sells it to people at below cost, and then they sell it at actual cost to um to various, you know, private parties, right? So they get this huge chunk of money that they did nothing to deserve. And it you know, straight straight up a bribe, right? And and that's the coalition. But the problem is is the coalition dies over time because as the pricing of houses keeps going up, you get less and less new entrants into the system, right? Because they can't afford it. So now you have well then millennials and zoomers who know that they will never own a house the housing unearned wealth chain is coming to an end and even some boomers got got screwed on it and a lot of exers did as well that coalition of sort of we will let the parts of the middle class in on the asset bubbles that we're going to create is now over because you can't get in anymore because you don't have enough money so if you if you didn't get in early enough and ride it long enough then you're you're screwed right you're done so you have a very narrow coalition, and the coalition now comes down to oligarchs and their lackeys and stupid people, right? Well, or I shouldn't just say stupid people, but retainers, right? I mean, people who are retainers. And so, in other words, I'm doing relatively well by working for the man, you know, and, and this is relatively okay. It's the same way that people get very confused about conservative women, right? But it's not really very, you know, like the majority of white women voted for Trump last time, and you're thinking, well, that doesn't make much sense. But the fact is, is that they have husbands. And if their husbands are going to do well under Trump, then so are they, right? So if you have a boss and your boss is relatively treating you more or less okay, or maybe he's even treating you badly, but it's a lot better than you'd be treated if you didn't have him because, you know, the option is have a bad boss or, you know, live on the street, then then it makes sense to back those people, right? And so you, you get all of these various vertical cleavages that people are not really willing to acknowledge. Still, the point is, is that the initial, the, the initial neoliberal coalition is dead because you cannot get in on the asset bubbles anymore if you aren't already in on them. And because of this, you actually have people who are willing to leave neoliberal institutions. Now, they're often being very stupid about it, but, you know, Brexit is not. Brexit happens because neoliberalism under the EU lets, you know, uh, 40% 40% or so of the British people up in the north, it takes away all their jobs and leaves them on welfare, basically, and then blames them mm-hmm. for it. Uh, and they're really, really angry. And then people, and then the neoliberals go, yeah, but if you do, if you, you know, if you Brexit, it'll be even worse for you. And you know what? That's true. But the fact is, is they go, yeah, but I know what I do know is that 30 years or 40 years in the EU has done nothing for me, 50 years now, I guess, right? I mean, so in other words, what you're saying is, is if you, if, you know, if you machine, you know, if you vote against the, the status quo, things will be worse for you. And they say, well, screw you because the status quo is terrible for me. And mm-hmm. and they're willing to take a chance, right? Well, no, those who were telling them, you know, things were going to be really bad if they left were people who tended to be doing really well through all those decades while those they were trying to convince were struggling. I mean, you know, and, 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 you know, how can I trust you anyway? You tell me that this will be terrible for me, but, but obviously, you know, you haven't done anything for me for the last 50 years except throw me crumbs, right? I mean, I remember I was in, I went to England in, I guess, 2010, and I wound up talking to a guy who was a senior labor apparatchnik, and like somebody was part of the, um, the sort of permanent party, you know, one of the guys who run the place but are never elected. We start talking about the financial crisis. I kid you not, it was all about these people up north who were on welfare and have been for generations. And I'm like, yeah, but they didn't cause the financial crisis, man. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I get that you don't like them and that you think that they're worthless eaters or something. And he's like, yeah, we need to do something about these people. And I'm like, but they didn't cause the financial crisis. And we could not. I mean, he was a really nice guy and I had been introduced to him by a friend and I didn't want to get into a 
into a fight with somebody been burned somebody else's social capital if you know what i mean mm-hmm. right but I, I i'm just like you know i walk away from it i'm just like you're fucking delusional man you're just delusional you know the, these people they you know they're they're a problem don't get me wrong something needs to be done for them but they're a problem because they're hurt they need help but they didn't cause the financial crisis your friends did right and and the, and and then the billions of dollars that you spent bailing people out didn't go to the poor people up in northern you know england they went to the rich people right i mean how much did you spend bailing out the you know the the bank of scotland or whatever it's called RBS. I mean, I mean, this is just crazy, right? I mean, you people are fucking delusional. <laughs> you people are often. Fu- I mean, I mean, the the and that's the problem is that our elites are living in Brad DeLong is to say live off in megas. Of course, Bruce DeLong is delusional, but anyway, or Brad DeLong rather. But you know, I mean, I mean, these people are living off in just la la land. They have no idea, right? I mean, they they they're just. It's just crazy. I mean, I can't even. They they don't live in the real world. They live in a but the problem is, is that the world they live in it's it's entirely functional to have their sort of beliefs because they just keep getting richer, right? I mean for forty, you know, ever since nineteen eighty, these people have just been getting richer and richer and richer and everything they do just makes them richer, right? So obviously they're not gonna stop doing what they're doing because it's making them richer. And if it runs the entire world off a cliff, well that's just too bad because I'm rich. So <laughs> so you know the thing you know, and th- this is the problem. I mean when Guns, German, Steel guy, uh, Ger- Diamond. Diamond he, yeah. he wrote two books that are really worth reading, right? And the second one is his book on Collapse. But I can save you a lot of time. You don't need to read Collapse because all that Collapse does is it's a very long series of studies that says when elites become, when elites are no longer <laughs> subject to the feedback, no longer you know affect them the same way they affect the rest of society, the society will eventually collapse, right? So if you're doing great and you're having an orgy there at Caligula while Rome burns or whatever, you know, then Rome will burn because what do you care, man? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I don't see that there's anything wrong in the world here. Why are you people complaining yeah. about things? Life is awesome. <laughs> and I think I'll debase the currency a little bit more. And, uh, you know, and, um, you know, so, you know, so, so this is, this is, you know, this is the problem that we're in right now is that our, our elites are completely delusional. They're completely out to fucking lunch. They have no idea what's going on in the real world. It's like when you ask, you know, they, every once in a while, they'll, you know, some reporter will ask some politicians, what is a banana cost? And they'll go, Ten bucks. I mean, they just don't know, right? They have they have no idea. And then you'll have somebody like Janet Yellen going, "Well, you know, given that that you know that housing and and rent and so forth is so much, why don't they just buy a house? I mean, mortgage is so much less than rent, and such a better deal." And you're like, "But Janet's worth, I don't know, I forget, hundred million or something." I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, she hasn't lived in the real world in in ages, right? And Nassim Taleb is he can he can come across as a real jerk, but mm-hmm. you know, there's some stuff that he says that's really valuable. And I remember, you know, one of them was because he's pretty, he's rich, right? I mean. He's got lots mm-hmm. of money. He's not super rich, but he's probably worth tens of millions of bucks, right? And he says, you know, he still does his own shopping, right? Because if he didn't, he wouldn't know what the fuck was going on, <laughs> you know? And he still does his own laundry. And, you know, I have to admit that if I was rich, I probably wouldn't shop all the time, but I probably would make it so that I, you know, let's say that I, you know, I get to the point where I have staff and they do that stuff for me. Yeah, fine. But once a month, I go do it myself, right? Because otherwise, pretty soon, you just don't have any idea. You just don't have any clue. And so the point is, is that everything that they do works and, and everything looks like genius to them. And the other thing is, is that everybody they know is doing well. That You get the feedback, Luke, of everything I have, I deserve, right? And the thing is, is that you got to understand about our elites is they work hard. I mean, they really do work hard. I mean, they put in 60, 78. I mean, you know, the, the, I mean, I'm not saying there aren't some useless people who do nothing, but, you know, the people, the key people like Dick Cheney and so forth. I mean, Dick was famous for putting in immense amounts of hours so that he completely fuck up Iraq, right? I mean, I, you know, he gets up at, you know, 5 a.m. in the morning, goes to bed at 11 at night, stands in front of that desk the entire time, only has two potty breaks. I mean, I don't know, right? But I mean, he was famous for this, right? And he's apparently brilliant and very disciplined and so forth and making all the wrong decisions, right? Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, he's rich and his daughter's rich and he had, you know, he's still alive because he can afford to have three, you know, three heart transplants because, my goodness, he's the Grinch. When they look at it, they say, I worked hard and I did all the right things and I got everything. And if you don't have those things, then there must be something wrong with you because everybody I know who worked hard and did the right things is rich. So therefore, I deserve everything, and all of you people are just a bunch of fucking losers. And if you were really important, good people, then you would have all these things because obviously it's possible because I did it, <laughs> right? So you know, like 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 all elites, they they think that they deserve what they have, and and they look at themselves and they say, "Well, I did. I work hard. I deserve what I have." 
see all of the stuff around and all of the waste they're laying to the world and so forth, right? And, you know, I mean, I know that there's a lot of people who think that the, the rich are, are completely aware of every evil that they do, but, and I think that the, some of the smarter ones are, right? But a lot of them are just, well, everything's great, man. So this is the sort of situation. And, and until this situation changes, until our elites change, you can't expect things to get better. Oh, yeah. The hyper concentration of wealth just carries on a pace. Well, have a concentration of wealth and of power and so forth. But the point is, the system is now set up to do that more or less automatically. You have a, you have a, you have an economic crisis that causes a massive contraction. You know, and what happens? The rich get richer, right? I mean, it's, it's like you know, the Great Depression happens, and instead of the rich getting poorer like they did during the Great Depression, we have now set things up so that they get richer, right? That's the way we have things set up. So as long as every time something goes wrong, things get better for the people who make powerful decisions. Has anything gone wrong? Not nothing has gone. Nothing has gone wrong for Jeff Bezos. Nothing has gone wrong for the people in the Senate. Nothing has gone wrong really for Nancy Pelosi. She's still worth 160 million dollars. I mean. Nothing has gone wrong for any of these people. So expecting them to fix anything when everything that you, you know, the coronavirus is not a bad thing if you are a rich American. It is a good thing. And therefore, there is not actually a problem. And therefore, there's nothing actually needs to be fixed. And therefore, they do not need to pass a second, you know, stimulus bill or whatever, right? They don't need to do anything because they got their bailout at the very beginning, right? At this point, everything is fine. Everything is good. And they're just watching the number, you know, the zeros, you know, being added to their bank accounts, right? They're in a position where they're protecting themselves and they have the means to do that. Well, they're not just protecting themselves. I mean, things are going well. They made the cor- from their point of view, they made the correct decisions to handle the COVID crisis, and everything is fine. By protect themselves, I was referring to their physical health. They're fine, right? They're fine. They get the very best care, and they they get tested every single day, right? And and they're isolated. They don't have to actually go around people who are working in their meatpacking plants, right? They're taken care of. It's it's actually it's not just being handled well. It's being handled excellently to make everything better for them. This is a good. thing. COVID was a good thing for them. And there is no, not only is there is there no problem, but life is better because of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. So why should they do anything to fix it? They'll get around to it, right? When they can make money off the vaccine and so forth. But, but there's, there's no actual crisis. And you can see the difference between that and China, which actually did fix things. They were very bad at you know the very, very beginning, but once they took it seriously, they fixed it, right? You know, people, you know, I was reading an account of some guy in, in Shanghai, you know, in the middle of I mean, this, this picture of like 50 people in a, you know, a crowded pool, right, having a great time. And they can do that because they've actually gotten rid of COVID. And every time it pops up, you know, five people get COVID, they shut the entire city down until they fix it. Because for them, for Chinese elites, whatever else is true, they actually need society to work. I mean, they, they actually want it to work. Or Thailand is not, it's not Thailand. Um, Vietnam is actually, I don't know, I guess they've had 15 deaths now, but for a long time, they had zero, right? Because they got right on it because it actually matters to their elites. To our elites, it does not. And, you know, I mean, this, I mean, you know, like England, I mean, I'm, I'm watching the, you know, the English are, are properly keeping, you know, it's kind of funny. They're actually properly keeping track of the number of, of kids, you know, in, in, in school who have actually gotten COVID. And, you know, I mean, then it's actually quite a lot of people, right? But we're just going to send them back anyway, because what the hell we want you, you know, we're not going back to work. I mean, the city isn't, the, 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 the city, the financial center is basically nobody is working in the financial center. They're all still at home. But they do want the uh, the peons to go back to work, and that means the kids have to go back to work because the real function of school is you know babysitting, right? And you know the parents can't go back to work if they have to look after their kids. Therefore, we have to force them to send their kids back to school. I don't know. I guess it's been in some respect this has been a very long rant. But uh, the point I want to make, then the reason for the rant is that the system is operating the way that the people who are in charge of it wanted to operate. And that includes Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi. These people are not upset at how things are going in in America. They are not upset, except that a buffoon named Trump is in charge, right? But other than that, it's not a problem. They're not fundamentally upset at things. If Pelosi had really been concerned about ordinary people, she could have held hostage relief for rich people until until that had been done. But that wasn't important to her, so she didn't do it, right? Also, a lot of it's run through the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. But, but you know, to the extent that she had leverage, she did not use it because why would she want to? It's her class that she would have been grabbing by the balls and squeezing by saying, I'm not going to do anything until you actually give everybody a $2,000 check for the duration, right? So, you know, she could have done that. She didn't do it. Why didn't she do it? Because she didn't want to do it because it's not in her interest, right? 
And and this is the important thing. And this is why you wanted to have an interview about Biden and Trump. And I just don't think it's very important. Anyway, I think I've I think I've made my point, right? Trump is important, is is important to a sense, and there are some people who it's life or death whether Trump wins or loses. But in a larger sense, the situation is is that America's elites, whether Republican or Democrat, do not give a damn about anybody but themselves. And they act that way and they're going to continue to act that way until you take away their power. And since you probably aren't individually in a point in able to do that, your job is to protect yourselves and your friends and your family and anybody else you care about. So so from my perspective, UK media coverage tilts pretty meaningfully to the right. UK voters were polled about this a few years ago, and, and they tended to agree with it. Their general consensus was, was that their media tends to tilt to the right. And I find it strange that they recognize that their press has this tilt, but their votes tend to go along with it. They've kept the Tories in power for 10 years. Boris Johnson had the country running off a cliff last year, but if you followed the coverage during that, that election, you'd hardly notice that that was going on because the, you know all of the press basically was put into demonizing Jeremy Corbyn. Even the Guardian's coverage leaned pretty heavily against him. What do you think about that? I mean, the entire media was against Jeremy Corbyn because the people who own the media don't want Jeremy Corbyn to win. You know, the BBC was fanatically anti-Corbyn, which I find very funny because, of course, you know, the the Tories are always talking about defunding the BBC. But again, I think the people who people who actually run the BBC are not reliant on the BBC. They're all Oxbridge types and so forth. They have class interests and they act in those class interests. And what about the people tending to vote with a? press that they say is pretty heavily biased. I mean, I think that the second thing to recognize is that Corbyn would have won in the first election if his own party apparatchniks had not been deliberately... I mean, they literally were working against him. We have the emails. We know that they were showing him one set of ads and, and, and running another set of ads, for example. Like when he looked at Facebook, he would see one set of Facebook ads and everybody else would see a different set of Facebook ads. That That's how... I mean, it wasn't just, we're working against you by dragging our feet. It's that we are deliberately trying not to get elected and we are deliberately running ads that we think will get us not elected. In other words, they would rather lose an election than have Jeremy Corbyn in charge. In a sense, they are correct. Okay, and I think that this is worth picking apart because what it really was was a fight for the Labour Party. It is better for them to lose an election and retain control of the Labour Party. Corbyn was was not willing to really take control the way he should have, unfortunately, and he gave them time and he made a series of mistakes. I mean, I admire Corbyn greatly, but God, the man has zero killer instinct because he could have taken control over the over the party even after he lost in 2017, and he should have, in my opinion. But they were willing to lose two elections to retain institutional control of the Labour Party, right? As long as they have institutional control of the Labour Party, they personally will be fine, and they will eventually back into power when the Tories screw up. This is exactly the same thing goes on with the Democrats. They would rather lose under Biden or Clinton than win under Sanders, because if Sanders becomes president, then he takes control of the party. And one of the things is, is rich people, especially the the long-term rich have long-term memories, right? Prior to FDR becoming president, the Democrats are the conservative party. They are the party of markets and money and so forth and so on. When he gets in charge and when he wins the election, he completely freezes those people out and he remakes the party in his image. He's actually quite savage about it. People like Al Smith and so forth. He was, you know, he was he was hugging two, you know, three months ago. Once he's in charge, they don't get anything from him. They don't get any jobs. They don't get a position in the party. They get nothing. They are frozen completely out of power. The thing is, old wealth and institutional money, they remember that. They still hate FDR. I mean, they still hate his guts, right? Most of the modern project can be understood especially in the U.S., but there's plenty of it. And there's, there's, there's a U.K. equivalent, right, of we are never letting an FDR ever happen again. When 2008 happens, when you have the financial crisis, the Federal Reserve, instead of letting people go bankrupt, basically says, we will shovel an infinite amount of money to them. Some numbers were about $20 trillion. You know, we will basically spend any amount of money, print any amount of money is what they really did, out of, out of midair to make sure that the rich do not lose their position. Because if they lose their money, they lose their power. And at that point, the possibility of an FDR becomes. And if if we then lose political power, we can lose everything like we did back in the 30s. And it took us 40, 50 years to undo FDR, right? We don't want to let that ever happen again, because who knows, next time it might be the Kingfisher. Next time it might be somebody who actually plants us in the ground rather than just sets us back for two or three generations. It just seems kind of obvious to me that by going down that path, they, they risk greater problems and, and a set of bigger corrections down the road. Well, but is it obvious? I mean, is it obvious? I mean, I'm not sure that it is. See, the thing is, is that our family is all British civil service types, right? 
So I spent a lot of time in my youth in, in India and Bangladesh, and I have actually have relatives in India who stayed there after partition. And you know, for a very long time, and still probably true, is you know, India was one of the poorest countries in the world, mm-hmm. and it had amongst the richest rich, and their their wealth was very very secure. If you read the literature of the sort of 40s to 50s, especially the 50s, right? So you get Agatha Christie, read her novels in the 50s. I was having a discussion with a guy who's a professional editor and writer, and he said that he went through and he read them all chronologically. And in the 50s, they're all just endless bitterness because the post-war British government really went after wealth in a big way. And suddenly you couldn't get servants, right? So let's say that these people get really rich and America turns into a third world you know, or a second world nation, right? It becomes, you know, a banana republic, right? It becomes some, so what? Where exactly is the problem? As long as you're still on top, Mm -hmm. you're still the richest person. In fact, a lot of your life is a lot easier, right? You got servants now and people are scared because they know that if they drop off, they wind up in the favelas. So they do what you say and they don't give you any back talk. So what exactly is it that the richest people in America are going to lose? Whereas if they lose their power, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, there, you know, I remember one of my friends, his family was quite rich and one of his grandmother, grand, great aunts got caught by it and wound up living in Harlem. It sounds like he was a real stiff necked old dame and she handled it pretty well. But the point is she basically lost everything, right? You know, she went from, you know, living in a mansion to living in a hovel, right? You know, the only real risk is if it goes full guillotine. Well, I guess the concern there is if you completely break the system and you end up with some sort of a dictator, you're pretty much rolling the dice for your personal circumstances. Are you really? No, no, no. Well, you are rolling the dice, but it's not a very big roll of the dice. I mean, the fact is, is that you know, is that the rich in in Germany did just fine under under Hitler, and in fact, they did better, and they did better in Italy, and then Franco took care of the rich, and yeah, Putin broke a couple of oligarchs, but that was only until they got the message. Putin's Putin's oligarch breaking with dog training. It was you don't seem to get it. I am now the alpha, right? <laughs> you can keep your money, but you can't challenge me. And as soon as they were ready to say yes, sir, right, then the breaking started. In fact, he treated them very nicely, right? So as long as you're willing to play ball with a dictator, you'll be fine. Maybe you don't like having a dictator. I mean, maybe that's not ideal. Maybe you prefer the old situation where you're sort of an autonomous baron, right? Or a semi-autonomous baron. You might even be better off under a, under a dictator, right? Especially if you play the court game properly. You know, their bet is, is that things will be fine for them. Things will be okay. In fact, running a first world nation is a pain in the ass, right? And America will still be powerful, so they won't be like a third world nation like Venezuela where somebody can push them around. They still have lots of guns, right? So where is the loss situation here? The only loss situation is is if they push the environment so far that we actually get a human extinction event (laughs) or if the left is powerful enough to actually get the guillotines out and start chopping heads, which they've done everything they can to make sure it does not happen. I mean, they may shrug at Trump, but if somebody like Bernie Sanders gets anywhere close, suddenly every single Democratic candidate drops out on the same day to make sure that he yeah. can't win, right? They know who the actual threat to their power and their safety is and their money. That's the left, not the right. And they are willing to play with the right, not the left. I mean, there was was recently... Somebody was talking about how named Zuckerberg, the guy who runs Facebook, had had all these meetings. And he says, well, it's not that we're friends or anything, but you look at them and they're all right-wingers. He hasn't had, a, hasn't had one of his nice little suppers with a single left-winger, right? Because why would he? Those people who actually want to, you know, those are the people who actually <laughs> want to break, fi- they, those are the people who actually want to break Facebook up and are serious about it, right? All the right-wing wants is for him to favor them, and he's willing to do that. I saw a recent article from Monica Bauerlein, the CEO of Mother Jones, in which she provided evidence of Facebook pushing their articles down so that they'd get fewer views. Monica is someone I respect, so I take the accusation seriously. That said, I don't consider them to be a particularly left-wing outlet these days, and yet their posts intentionally receive less traffic in response to the complaints of right-wing actors. What do you think about that? Well, this is what always happens. So you have the 2016 election and everybody comes out of it screaming hysterically that Russia was bad, 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 bad. Nothing Clinton did matter, but everything Russia did cost cost the election, right? And we needed a censor. We needed a censor. We needed a censor. You got to crash down on these people. So Facebook and Google say, okay, we'll do that. I remember when Google put in their algorithm change. 
the World Socialist website, who actually is, of course, actually left wing, I actually did an article on it. You can Google it, sort of World Socialist website, you know, Google algorithm, and it'll come up. And they lost, you know, massive amount of traffic. I mean, about a third of their traffic, if I recall correctly. And I saw something similar with my website. Now, I'm not huge, but I'm not tiny. Uh, well, I'm tiny, 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 real circumstances, but I get thousands of people. A long time ago, I wrote a, I forget the exact title, but it was basically Ethics and Moral- Ethics versus Morality 101. Now that that as it turns out is the perfect SEO title for people, you know, freshmen who have to write about the topic, right? <laughs> what is the difference between ethics and morals? Write 500 words. And so for years and years and years it was on the first page and usually it was like the third. So this this Google algorithm comes in and now it's on like the third page. I haven't checked in a while, but it dropped basically off the first page and has never been on the first page. So it used to be I would go check my analytics and it would always be like the top article for the month unless I had to go viral. And now I never see it anymore. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously, if the right wing gets in power, then you will have, as as the CEO of Facebook, like the real right wing, I mean, if it actually goes fascist or, you know, or mm-hmm. dictator or whatever, then, you know, the CEOs will have to go to Washington and get down on their knees and touch their heads to the toes, right? But nothing else will really change. I mean, they just, it'll be a little personally humiliating, but in fact, they will probably actually do better. The, the people who did best under the Nazis actually were the management class. Like senior, you know, senior vice president of whatever, right? Those people actually saw large increases in their wages. So, you know, those people will be fine. They will be okay. Now, one or two maybe made an example of, right? Play it well, that won't be you, right? It's like it's like how um, Tim Cook has, you know, Bush. Trump has been doing all these anti-China things, and Tim Cook is on the phone to not Bush to to Trump every you know week, basically, you know, making sure that. Since Apple manufactures pretty much everything in in China, that that Apple keeps mm-hmm. getting exemptions, right? So Trump thinks that Tim Cook is a wonderful person, and Tim Cook mm-hmm. never says anything bad about Trump because Trump right. could snap the neck of, of Apple's business tomorrow just by slapping a tariff or, or something on onto you know Chinese goods or just forbidding certain technologies from being used by them, and suddenly Foxconn can't manufacture ninety percent of of Apple stuff, right? So there's already a certain amount of that sort of groveling going on, right? It's happening mm-hmm. right now. So all that really happens is that you have to go grovel. But other than that, you're actually probably going to be even better off. Now, what happens if the left wing gets in charge? We're not talking Stalin. We're not talking Lenin. We're just talking FDR or uh, the guy who, I forget his name, but the, the the prime minister who took over after Churchill, right? Well, suddenly your your income tax rate is 90% and there's a wealth tax that's taking away 5% of your tax, your wealthy year. And you remember how Bill Gates squealed when that was suggested? I mean, he just, you know, you would have sworn that somebody stuck something up his ass the way he suddenly started going, oh, but I don't want to spend my money better. I mean, I really, I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, I would, you know, I would, if I was losing 5% a year, I mean, I'd be still a billion, you know, a multi-multi-billionaire. Isn't he making at least that much every year? I mean, for fuck's sake, man. But the point, the point is, is, you know, I mean, you should have, I mean, I mean, I remember it very well. I mean, he was like, oh my God, these plans that, that, um, you know, Warren and, and Bernie have, you know, I mean, they're, they're just beyond the pale. And I'm like, well. What are you doing with all this money anyway? So, you know, the point is, is that if the left gets into power, any real left, they will actually hurt rich people, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. In, in ways that actually matter to them. I mean, you know, there's, you know, even a mile rich isn't going to, I mean, there's not like they're going to wind up on the street. They're going to go hungry or anything, right? It's not, it's not anything that you or I would consider any real damage, right? Mm-hmm. But from their point of view, they're going to lose a lot of power and a lot of wealth and, and, and so forth and so on. Their companies are going to be broken up. You know, Google needs to be broken up into at least, I don't know, six or seven pieces. So does Facebook, right? You know, any re- or you get nationalized, one of the two, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure which they would consider to be worse. So, you know, or you get regulated completely. You want now make five percent profit every year and do exactly what we say right uh and those are sort of the three models and all three of them you know suddenly you don't become you know i mean bezos is basically an uncrowned king right Mm -hmm. suddenly i'm sorry mr bezos but we regulators do not allow you to do that also you can't sell your own goods anymore it all has to be you know intermediaries also you will make five percent profit also you will do these 50 things and if you don't do them we'll throw you in prison and that just takes all the fun out of it right leaving aside (laughs) everything else right well you know even if you are still a trillionaire it's like well i'm a trillionaire but i don't get to do anything fun anymore i don't get to crush my enemies i don't get to hear the lamentations of their women as you know i drive them before i mean you know what what is life if you can't crush your enemies and buy up anybody who might be a threat to you right and take over companies and then drop the wages you know their, their hourly wages by two two bucks an hour you know, like Bezos did to, um, to Whole Foods, right? Stores. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, the man is just evil. But if you can't be rich and evil, what is the point of being rich? <laughs> I mean, if, if these these damn bureaucrats, you know, make you actually treat people properly, that that's just beyond the pale. But the point is, is that we are actually, you know, 
because I am a left winger, you know, we are actually an existential threat to them from their point of view. And it is true that, you know, if we were in charge, we would take their power away from them at the very least, right? And frankly, I would take away, well, you know, I wouldn't sign off to guillotines, but, you know, you got you have to take away their power because you can't rule with them in, around. And that's been proved multiple sure. times that they're, they're just not, they're not willing to say, okay, you won fairly and therefore I will cooperate. They will, they will go behind their back and do everything they can to destroy you, including if you are not an American you know, doing their best to convince the Americans to slap on sanctions and maybe even invade you, right? So we're an actual threat to them. And geez, I've managed to actually completely forget the oh right. So every time you every time every time you ask for censorship, yeah, they may hit some right wingers, right? Mm-hmm. But somehow they always seem to hit left harder. Now, of course, Mother Jones isn't very left wing, but they do occasionally like they had a very good article a while back where somebody became a security became a prison guard, right? And yep, did a prison guard. So they, they showed that for profit prison companies are scum. And you know, I mean, if you can't lock people up and make tons of money off of them, what the hell, right? Man, this is America. And obviously, you know, those Mother Jones people are still pinko commies, right? You know, because I mean, they think that there are some limits on the amount of evil you should be able to do in order to make money, right? If first they say that we can't have, you know, we can't lock people up and make money off of their misery, you know, what what is next? So yeah, of course, right? I mean, they, they want a, a completely compliant that does things that are in their interest. Again, you know, it really comes down to you hire somebody to do things that are going to make your life better. It's just that simple. So everybody who works for Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook is exists in order to make Mark Zuckerberg's life better. And if they don't, they go away. And Mike Zuckerberg's life is made better by being as powerful and rich as possible. And anybody who says, maybe we should increase his taxes by 0.01% is obviously Mark Zuckerberg's enemy. And anybody who supports any causes that you know might cause Mark Zuckerberg some problems are obviously Mark Zuckerberg's enemies, which is why he talks to the right and he doesn't talk to the left. Is that if you want to understand the world, what you have to do is you have to look at it from the viewpoints of the actors in the world. So how would they feel? How would they act? And I know, I mean, I come across as pretty cynical and and angry and so forth, and I am. I'm very cynical and very angry. (laughs) Um, I do do my best to understand how they think. Do you see what I mean? You know, their their point of view of the world, that what they have, they earned. They deserve it. Anybody who doesn't have it doesn't deserve it. Obviously, they made the money and they know how to spend it properly and that nobody else should have any rights over their money because it's their money. I mean, they're very explicit about their ideology. And that obviously, anybody who works for them, they you know you hire somebody to do things for you, right? Being powerful and being rich is really nice. And that obviously, you don't want to lose that wealth or that power. And one of my favorite bits was we had the financial crisis and the world's teetering on collapse and blah, 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 and it's all very bad and so forth. And then you have these bankers coming up and saying, but we got to keep playing, paying bonuses because otherwise, how can we afford to hire the best? And I'm like, well, but the best just, you know, like, <laughs> I, I mean, if these are the best, can we try the second raiders? I, I'd, I'd like I'd like to, I'd like to see how they do. I mean, uh, uh, you know, um, but the point is, is they're completely sincere about it, right? Like they're not, they're not, you know, they're, they're, you know, I mean, I'm sure that there's a few cynical people who are just laughing their asses off. Can you believe these suckers believe this shit? Um, but you know, be, but be, but you listen to the uh, the way these these Wall Street guys talk, and there you're like, you know, we go out there and we earn our money, man. I am the biggest fucking alpha since somebody killed an ape with his bare hands. That's me. You know, the only people who are worse are certain types of lawyers. So, you know, that that's that's how they really view themselves, right? They think, I got myself into this position where I can make lots of money because basically the Federal Reserve shovels it down my mouth, and that means that I am an apex predator. Well, I mean, they sort of are an apex predator in the sense that, you know, they're the ones who made sure that the, the Federal Reserve, we set the machine up to ram this money down our throats, and therefore we deserve it. They're not entirely wrong in a sense, right? We are, they are sort of apex predators after, after a fashion. It's just not quite the fashion that they think it is. This is their point of view. This is their worldview. This is how they see things. And as long as our elites, as long as the people who run our economy and our politics are these sort of people who have these sort of beliefs, right? And take these sort of actions and have these sort of incentives, if you want to use their speak, right? Then nothing fundamental is going to change. And to bring it all back to, you know, the very beginning of the conversation where it's all Trump, Biden, well, <laughs> you know, there are differences and I don't want to downplay them because there are some people who will die under Trump that wouldn't die under Biden. There are also people who will die under Biden who wouldn't die under Trump, especially foreigners. You know, I think people underestimate, I mean, Biden, I think might be, is probably more of a warmonger than Trump is. I, I could be 
you're wrong about that. I mean, I think it's actually probably a different set of foreigners. Like Trump really hates, you know, Iran, whereas Biden hates Venezuela more or something. You know, a different set of foreigners will die under Biden than would die under Trump, basically. Of course, the Yemenis will continue getting bombed no matter who's in part. We will just continue genociding them because our friends, the Saudis, want them dead. Basically, they belong to the same class. Basically, they have the same interests. And basically, they're both very, 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 very bad people, unless you're their son. Right? I mean, well, you know, I guess if you're Trump's son, then he's still a bad person. But if you're Biden's son, then he's the most wonderful person in the world. And it's wonderful that Biden is a great father, and I actually admire him for it. But it doesn't do you any good because, you know, it doesn't do you any good or me any good or anybody listening to this podcast because you are not Biden's son or his friend. If you were his friend or his son, he would take very good care of you. I believe that. I believe that Biden is a wonderful human being if you are sort of within his circle. If yeah. Within his circle of care. Joe American is not within his circle of care. And certainly Joe Foreigner is not. So nothing is going to change in America because significance to most people for the better because Biden wins. That doesn't mean you shouldn't vote for Biden mm-hmm. if if you think he's going to be better than Trump, which I think there's a fairly decent argument that he is. Mm-hmm. You know, some marginal people will be taken better care of. Well, he's one of the architects of the system and he's not going to say, Well, my entire life's work was a mistake. Thanks for listening to the Wicked Problems and Circular Systems podcast. If you enjoyed the show, you can sign up for updates at wpcs.substack.com.